there's nothing that destroys a suburban way of life by putting a duplex in a community or a triplex in a community or uh, making it possible for uh, diverse populations to live in that community. When he talks about the suburban way of life, he's talking about an exclusively white way of life. Hello and welcome to this episode of Who Belongs, a podcast from the OMB Institute at UC Berkeley. Last week, Trump announced he had eliminated an Obama-era fair housing rule put in place in 2015 to reverse patterns of residential segregation that have been in place for many decades. The move was widely seen as both an attack on integration and also a racial fear-mongering strategy to appeal to his white base of supporters three months before the election. To talk about the purpose of the 2015 affirmatively furthering fair housing rule and the consequences of its elimination, we'll hear from two guests. The first is Richard Rothstein, who is the author of The Color of Law, Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. He's also a senior fellow at our institute. The second guest is Stephen Menendian, our assistant director and co-author of the Institute's Racial Segregation in the San Francisco Bay Area Report Series. Here was our conversation. So we could just, you know, cut to the chase and and talk about what we heard from Trump and his housing secretary last week about ending AFFH. And this is, you know, something that was widely denounced by housing justice advocates. So I guess the first question is, what is AFFH or specifically the the Obama era rule and what what problem it's trying to solve? So this is a great question. Let let's take it into two parts. First, let's talk about what AFFH is and then what the rule is. And let's start with Richard on what AFFH is. Well, in the Fair Housing Act, the 1968 Civil Rights Act, the act said that uh, jurisdictions had to uh, affirmatively further the purposes of this act, which has consistently been interpreted as uh, including what Senator Mondale, who sponsored the law, said was the purpose of the act, which was to... um, create inclusive communities, non-segregated communities. And so since 1968, communities have had an obligation under the Fair Housing Act to take affirmative steps to desegregate. In simple language, that's what the rule is about. Now, what the Obama administration did was enact a rule in 2015 that put flesh on the bones of that uh, 1968 There had been interim uh, interpretations of it as well. The Obama administration wasn't the first one to do it. But what the Obama administration did was required uh, jurisdictions that receive uh, community development block grant funds, which is virtually every community, uh, to do an assessment of the obstacles in their community to desegregated housing, to fair housing, and then to come up with plans to uh, redress those obstacles with the uh, threat, which could never have been um, actuated in the time that the Obama administration had left since the rule was implemented. But the threat was that if communities did not take plans to redress the segregation that they had uncovered in their assessments, that community development block grants might be withheld from them. So I'll add a little bit to Richard's. Richard gave a great start. The first thing to understand is that that AFFH was not defined by the act itself. So there are two provisions that referred to it. Richard mentioned one. The other was that the secretary of HUD was supposed to take HUD was supposed to take affirmative steps to further fair housing. And this is back in 1968. We're talking in, in the Fair Housing Act itself, which went into effect in 1970. And 
this was basically ill-defined. And so courts courts struggled for 45 years to make sense of what AFFH meant. And they would look at the legislative history, as Richard said, Senator Mondale's statements and others. And it wasn't until the Obama administration that HUD actually promulgated a rule. And they proposed the rule in 2013. It took, there were two comment periods they went through. So it was a very rigorous and careful approach. And the rule they came up with that Richard mentioned in 2015 not only clarified this ambiguous phrase, affirmatively further for housing, but it defined a process. I also want to just emphasize that the definition in the Obama rule is phenomenal. It's a multifaceted definition that brings into play segregation, uh, racial and ethnic concentration, and economic economic factors and opportunities. So it's a really wonderful definition. But more than just defining it, it created a process and a really robust process. And the process did a number of things. But one of the things that it did was it created, they created a separate web website, basically a web-based interface that gave data and mapping tools to jurisdictions to conduct their assessment of fair housing, which was basically the new version of the analysis of impediments that they, they conducted prior to that to comply with. You know. So this AFH, this assessment of fair housing, cities were supposed to submit. And as as Richard said, if they didn't do this process or if they didn't certify that they were making progress, then they were at threat of losing funding. And in fact, in 2016, then Secretary of HUD Julian Castro came to Berkeley and presented at the Berkeley Forum. And I was in the audience and I asked him that question. I was looking for the video of it because it, it's it's pretty funny that I was so pointed on it. But I said, I said, Secretary Castro, if jurisdictions refuse to comply or are half-hearted in their compliance, are you actually going to hold them to account? And he said in his answer, yes, we will deny, we will deny funding to jurisdictions who do not do not do this. And in the initial phase, uh, there were only 20, the first year of implementation in 2016, there were 22 jurisdictions, and then there were 105 that were supposed to submit their assessments in 2017. And that's when, um, that's when the Trump administration announced that it was going to, it actually suspended all the assessments, but it wasn't until January of this year, 2020, that it actually created a new rule in the federal register, a proposed rule that was submitted for comment period. And then to bring it up to the, to, just to bring it up to the present, um, the com- after the comment period, there were lots of comments. Just just at the end of July, they, pro- they submitted the final rule, which went even further than the proposed rule in January. So the proposed rule in January was basically going to just say that you were compliant if you had adequate affordable housing and there was no explicit discrimination. In the, in the final rule, uh, they made it clear that the president was unhappy with even that proposed rule. And so it went even further in rolling back, you know, in rolling back any requirements or compliance, what they thought was a tremendous burden on jurisdiction. Okay, so that just completely eliminates the 2015 rule. It doesn't modify it or anything like that. And then I actually, I read the, the document on the housing uh, website, and it says that the new rule returns to the original understanding of what the AFFH certification was for the first 11 years of its existence, uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so what does that mean? 
Well, that's just nonsense. I mean, what it is is they're basically what they're basically trying to say is that because HUD hadn't promulgated a rule, you know, defining and clarifying what AFFH meant, that there was no right that this is the original understanding. That's just not true because courts struggled for years, decades to figure out what it meant. And you had you had precedent and jurisprudence defining the, this phrase. So that's it's it's just window dressing on a bad on a bad decision on a on a decision to really take teeth out of the out of AFFH from a regulatory perspective. But maybe Richard could talk about it from a more historical perspective. Well, yes. What I wanted to say is that um, it took teeth out of the the rule, but the real teeth will come only if there's political support for actually withholding funds from jurisdictions that uh, don't implement plans to desegregate, to put it simply. In 1970, uh, George Romney, without the benefit of a formal rule, uh, he was Secretary of Housing and Urban Development at that time, the father of the present Utah Senator, uh, Secretary of HUD George Romney, citing the rule, but without, uh, or citing the provision in the act, rather, that uh, jurisdictions have to affirmatively further fair housing, actually did withheld funds, withheld funds from three suburban communities that refused to accept African-Americans in, in subsidized housing or public housing or to take any steps to desegregate. He withheld funds from a suburb of Detroit. He withheld funds from a suburb of, of Baltimore. And he withheld funds from a suburb of Cleveland. There was enormous political blowback from it. And Nixon overrode him, canceled his uh, actions. He called it open communities not affirmatively furthering fair housing, but it was the same thing. Nixon canceled the open communities program and um, uh, that was the end of it. And uh, until the Obama administration's rule in 2015, we heard very little about this since. But my uh, fear is that if the Obama administration had, or its successor, an administration other than Trump, had continued with this rule. And actually, despite what uh, Julian Castro said, he was talking about what one of his successors might do. It wasn't something he was going to take responsibility for because by the end of Obama's second term, none of the, uh, the, the jurisdictions that had been proposed plans to desegregate would have been held account to account for those plans. So the real question is what would happen if a jurisdiction failed to uh, follow through with its plans to uh, uh, desegregate or even come up with adequate plans to desegregate, would there be political support for uh, an administration that withheld funds? Many of these are suburban communities. They're, they're heavily white communities. Uh, many of them are democratic in, in voting power. The Democratic Party is a coalition of white suburbanites, otherwise perhaps termed as NIMBYs, not in my backyard. And so it's a coalition of white suburbanites and uh, low-income and minority and, and uh, culturally progressive liberals. A lot of work needs to be done to prepare the ground for the AFFH actually to have impact in desegregating. And I think it's important not to place too much emphasis on the rule uh, to the exclusion of the political support that we need to develop in order to have an understanding 
in the country at large about why it's important to take these steps to desegregate. I think the Black Lives Matter movement played an enormously positive role in awakening the country to racial inequality, but it needs to take the next step and really educate people about the importance of this rule so that if it ever comes to, to the point where it becomes necessary to enforce it, there won't be the kind of blowback we had in 1970. So, so to jump in here, uh, Mark and Richard, I think we all anticipated that as this, as the Obama era rule began its implementation process, that there would be a backlash, right? And and Trump is really playing on, you know, he. It's a little bit ironic because he 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 killed the rule, but then leveraged, you know, tried to gin up and stoke fear about it, you know, in a way that he was actually responsible for undermining fear because he, he nullified it in a sense. But but here's the thing. Um, there's always going to be... The, the, the rule, I think, was clever in doing a number of things. First, it phased in slowly to try and actually, I think, do some of that groundwork, not the political or cultural side, you know, or the, the, the political anticipation piece that I think Richard was referring to, but it really did create a kind of hand-in-glove process and the process did produce some really yielded some really interesting results. So, for example, of the jurisdictions that would submitted, basically HUD had 60 days to respond to the assessment, and if it didn't, it was automatically uh, approved. If HUD did respond, if it was rejected, then it was supposed to work with the jurisdiction within the next 45 days to make revisions. Some of the submissions that were generated through this process are fascinating documents. So, Los Angeles was one of the jurisdictions and they produced like a 200 page document that's a really remarkable forward thinking kind of roadmap for racial equity um and so i think these documents were very very useful um there were some i believe that were actually rejected or now the window for working with hud told didn't fully toll rather before this whole thing this whole thing was suspended by the incoming trump administration but I think that there were some interesting things that came out of it and that would have come out of it even further. One of the complaints the Trump administration had in the proposed rule of January 2020 is they said that, quote, the assessment, the existing rule was too complex to be effectively completed by staff without specific statistical and mapping knowledge because of the demographic analysis requirement. Now, that's why HUD created this interactive tool. And the interactive tool, which they just took down, was wonderful because it meant that not only jurisdictions could use this tool to look at demographic data and, and segregation, but anyone, right? Fair housing advocates, uh, concerned citizens could use this tool. So it created a set of tools and a process that I think was very valuable. And that process in itself and that tool in and of itself had value independent of, of, the a of AFFH. And now all of that is gone. So, I mean, what you're saying actually contradicts that statement by Ben Carson, the housing secretary, because he said in the last week or two that the 2015 rule was, quote, unworkable and ultimately a waste of time for localities to comply with, end quote. So, I mean, basically you're saying that's just hogwash. Well, I'd say that it's uh, very cynical and, and uh, on, on Carson's part. You know, Carson came into office claiming because he claimed to be a libertarian, and this is something libertarians believe, that we should abolish everywhere, prohibit 
zoning ordinances that uh, required only single family homes on large lot sizes. Libertarians consider those zoning rules to be a, a violation of freedom to uh, prohibit a property owner from constructing a duplex or a triplex or, or any other kind of housing uh, on property that, that he or she owns. So for them now to uh, repeal the rule that uh, require jurisdictions to analyze the extent to which their zoning rules, this was an important part of the rule, to the extent to which their zoning rules effectively reinforced and perpetuated racial segregation is a, a violation of their own stated principles and quite a cynical reversal from the uh, high-minded uh, claims that uh, Carson made when he came into office about uh, the extent to which zoning could perpetuate racial segregation. All right. So what do you think about the justification, the Trump's justification? That's what Ben Carson said. But Trump, he's talking about AFFH as being, these are his words, hell for suburbia, that people work really hard and try to go and live the suburban dream and that they're that their that fair housing is destroying their lives, um, and so what do you make of that statement, um, Richard? And I'll just add one more thing: is that you know the way he's framing it is that government's coming in and harming these communities. So we uh, ended a rule that was a very horrible rule for people in suburbia in the suburbs. For years they've lived there and they want to destroy their lives and destroy what they have. But there's a big irony there, which you write about in your book, Color of Law, uh, when you look at who are the people who are who have actually been harmed by government policy in the past by the creation of segregation, the demolition of integrated neighborhoods. Well, I, I think it's uh, all I can say is that uh, this claim about the suburban way of life is a dog whistle for an all white segregated way of life. Uh, we all know what he means when he talks about the suburban way of life. There's nothing that destroys a suburban way of life by putting a duplex in a community or a triplex in a community or uh, making it possible for uh, diverse populations to live in that community. When he talks about the suburban way of life, he's talking about an exclusively white way of life. Uh, that's what his listeners understand him to mean. And that's what he's playing on when he makes those kinds of statements. Just to add to what Richard said, what's going on is, I think it's beyond a dog whistle. It's an explicit, it, it, it's implicit in, in the superficial sense, but he's really just continuing his demagogic rhetoric, trying to stoke fear, trying to gin up votes. You know, he's in a precarious electoral position and he's doing anything he can to stoke fear. And it's it's ridiculous because number one, um, this this rule, the original version of the rule, you know, implemented as it was beginning its implementation on the Obama administration, is more process than anything, right? And even though Julian Castro, when I asked, said that they would ultimately hold up money, there were there were we were miles away from that, right? Because the if a plan is rejected, then you have to work with HUD to try and improve it. That doesn't mean you're just going to lose money, you know, the next day. It, it, I think you would have to demonstrate a severe and egregious pattern of exclusionary behavior before they would even reach that point. And there would be, you know, plenty of lawsuits, you know, try, you know, trying to stay any order to deny money. So it was just he's he's 
just continuing his pattern of trying to gin up fear and stoke fear. And and what Richard said that there's this notion that suburbanization is like is white and coded white in some way, it also couldn't be further from the truth. There's almost there are very few entirely white suburban jurisdictions, even in the Bay Area, you know, which is a very diverse place. The most white suburban jurisdictions are basically between two thirds white and basically 75% white, three quarters white. And even in in states that are, you know, whiter than California, a lot whiter than California, you know, it's there's it's very rarely the case that a jurisdiction is entirely white. Uh, one thing I wanted to know is what you think uh, this entails for other kind of like strategies, maybe government programs for integration. Um, you know, what are like the avenues now for for localities that are trying to integrate that are trying to solve this problem of segregation? Well, I want to emphasize again that uh, not that this is all unimportant. It's, it's very important. But more important is developing a political, a new civil rights movement that's going to uh, make it politically possible to implement even the best plans. So the AFFH rule was a good rule. Uh, but it itself was not going to desegregate anybody. And uh, unless uh, we have the political support that's going to create momentum for, for desegregation, for inclusive communities, uh, a rule itself can't do it. So I'm sure that if we have a new administration, it's not the Trump administration, the rule and something close to it would be reinstated. But we're talking years between the time a community makes a plan to desegregate or its officials make a plan to desegregate and the time that uh, HUD is going to withhold funds from that community for failing to implement its plans. Uh, We have example after example after example of well-intended public officials who try to make a provision for affordable housing in their communities and the so-called NIMBY backlash um, uh, prevents those plans from being implemented. Uh, A new book um, by Connor Doherty called Golden Gates describes the turmoil in Lafayette, California, when public officials made a genuine effort to accommodate a developer's plan to create housing that was not single, simply single-family home housing. And the book documents extensively the political impossibility of implementing those plans. So um, I think we need to pay attention not only to the rules, which we should pay attention to, I'm not minimizing it all, but also to the other half of it, and that is how do we get the political support to implement those rules in a full fashion. Well, part of the way that we do that is by raising continued awareness of both the reality, the extent of the reality, and the effects of this reality. You know, it's it's one thing to say, you know, exclusionary zoning produces racial disparities, but it's another thing to pinpoint the extent to which that exists in the Bay Area or in our own wherever your community is. So we have a report coming out um, very soon that's going to show the extent of single family zoning in the Bay Area. And by single family zoning, we are referring to zoning that is exclusively zoned for single family homes. And in the Bay Area, literally 83% 
of all residential zoned land is exclusively for single family zoning, which means essentially that, you know, only 17% of residential land is available for apartments, for multifamily housing, for dense housing. And that has an incredibly exclusionary effect. And so what we did is we looked to see basically the relationship between segregation and single family zoning, and there's a clear one. So for example, um, you know, basically all of the communities that are above 90% single family zoning, not all of them, but a significant number of them are, you know, about 70% white or more. So there's a relationship between percent white and percent single family zoning. And you can do that. You can look at that for a number of other effects, which we're, which we're planning to release a report around. And that wraps up this episode of Who Belongs. Thank you to our guests, Richard Rothstein, author of The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America, and to Stephen Menendian, our assistant director and co-author of the Institute's Racial Segregation in the San Francisco Bay Area report series. For links to some of their work and other resources, including a transcript of this interview, visit us online at belonging.berkeley.edu slash who belongs. Thank you for listening.